Welcome to Creators by Moonlight. Real conversations with content creators. Grant Enley is an actor from Savannah, Georgia, who's worked on both numerous stage productions as well as film and TV sets. In this interview, he shares some of the lighter moments from his career, as well as talking about unconventional jobs, the agent problem, and raising a child who also works in show business. So I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio. And, uh, you know, just a real standard, regular childhood. Didn't come from money or anything like that, but it wasn't a big deal. You know, one of the standard middle-class lives that everybody aspires to, I suppose. My first interest in acting or in working on the stage, um, I had gone to see a performance of The Nutcracker for my birthday when I was nine or 10, something like that. First time I'd ever seen a show that I can recall on a stage, and I, I, I loved it. It was amazing. It was so good. We had great seats, and uh, I really enjoyed it. So that was like what kind of put that kernel in my mind of, hey, maybe I should be a performer. My actual first work uh, was on the stage. I was auditioning for uh, Arsenic and Old Lace in high school. I did the dumbest audition you can possibly imagine because I had no idea what I was doing whatsoever. I had no idea how to do a monologue, I guess. It doesn't make sense to me thinking back on it so many years later, but apparently I hadn't developed that skill yet. So what I did for the audition was basically took a Fisher-Price kid's telephone up on stage and improv some sort of crazy scene that I was coming up with while I was on stage. Something something to do with wanting to play baseball because I was also like talking on the phone and trying to play catch with myself and, and trying to have this phone conversation all at the same time. And um, it was just getting bigger and crazier as I was trying to you know catch the ball, keep the phone going, move around on the stage. And, and I have no idea what I was doing. I don't know what anybody saw in that. It was kind of like a needle scratch moment on like a record player that when I was done, like the kids, like I, some of them were just like eyes just wide open, mouths open, just staring at me like, what in the entire world was that? What were you doing? The director, she she was like, well, that was a very interesting piece of theater. Thank you for sharing that. Something like that. I, you know, that's something that I kind of carry with me, I guess. People who know me and know me well uh, would say that I kind of fly by the seat of my pants a lot of times, kind of do things in the moment. I probably do less of that now, but I certainly, in my youth, was capricious and uh, willing to do whatever it took. Always been a class clown. So I got cast as one of the police officers in uh, Arsenic and Old Lace. show was great. I really enjoyed getting to meet people who did theater and enjoyed theater. And it was definitely a memorable occasion for me to have been in that play because a uh, very opening performance. We did a matinee show during the school day for 
middle school kids or elementary school kids. I, I don't a mix of younger children from our school district were bussed in to see this performance. Of course, it was my first time on the stage. I was very nervous. So whole play sitting around backstage waiting to come in to deliver just a handful of lines uh, while we're trying to arrest this insane brother who struggles and puts up a fight. Uh, unfortunately, they gave me a real wood billy club um, that I was supposed to subdue the guy with. But my training failed me, whatever training I did have, because that very first performance, I came out, he started to pull back from his would-be arresters, and I'm supposed to bring the nightstick down and miss him by a mile and make it look like I hit him in the back of the head. And I actually cracked him right in the back of the head. And knocked him out cold on the stage. So he had to be drug off the stage and revived. And we went into a pause for a few minutes while we were trying to make that happen. So that was my uh, my trial by fire, my introduction to live theater. I had many wonderful experiences. The, the director that we had my freshman year left after that year to go to a different school. So then we had a new theater teacher. So she was not new to teaching theater, but new to our school completely. And she was wonderful. She's, she's a, a role model for me still to this day, somebody that I look upon fondly and uh, I'm still in contact with. She really stoked the passion inside me to uh, enjoy theater and performance, things like that. Um, we did a lot of great shows together, a show that was probably my favorite in high school. Uh, we did Neil Simon's Lost in Yonkers, and this was the, the show hadn't been out for very long at that point. We were probably in the kind of the first round of high schools sort of doing it after it left its Broadway run initially. Um, I played Uncle Louie in that, uh, the, the uncle who comes to stay with two young kids who are orphans or they're, they're like living with their grandmother. And he is maybe involved in some kind of nefarious stuff. He's, he's, he's either a mobster or a wannabe mobster and nobody can quite figure out for sure if he's the real deal or not. That was a show that I really enjoyed. We, we did it in the fall of my sophomore year and um, in Ohio where I grew up, there is a strong theater tradition. They do local conferences where they have a bunch of neighboring schools get together and spend a weekend, you know, playing theater games and watching each other's shows and uh, taking classes on different stagecraft techniques and, and skill sets and things of that nature. Then there's also a state event each year where all of the schools from all over Ohio come together. And um, in that particular year, we were one of the shows that were selected to be a main stage show for this whole theater conference. They only select uh, like four shows from all of the high school shows. So we were slated to be one of the shows there and reprised the role. And that was, <laughs> to date, maybe the largest audience I've ever played in front of. There were We filled the entire college theater at... It's Ashland University is where we were at. And there were 2,000 people in the audience, full house. That was just a brilliant moment in my life. I really, really enjoyed getting the opportunity to perform Uncle Louie. So that was, uh, that was 
would definitely, you know, I had already been bit by the bug, but that was when the poison started to set in for sure. I really wanted to see what I could do in a performance environment. But I didn't really think I had a great chance of being successful in theater. And I didn't really have a lot of people like pushing me in my life saying, you should, you should do that. I mean, people were tell, would tell me after the shows how great I was. And we gave out little awards at the end of each year and I won awards. But, I, you know, I was set to be the first kid in my family to go to college. And both my mother and my father said that I should probably go to college for something reasonable, something that I could actually make some money at. We decided education was the route to go because we were stupid and didn't know anything about money. But it seemed like a solid middle class professional job to go into. So I went to college um, up in Ohio, a little school called Heidelberg University. There's a famous one in Germany. And uh, I like people to be confused and think that that's the one I went to. But I went to the small one in Tiffin, Ohio. And I went there because it was an education school, uh, but they didn't have a theater program. And I tried out for the very first play my freshman year. And again, that didn't seem like the kind of thing that worked out for very many people very often. But not only was I in that show, which was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, but I also had many parts with it because they wanted to keep the cast small and have several people playing multiple parts. So I ended up playing four of the smaller parts um, within that play. While we were in rehearsals for that play, I decided to drop my education major and switch to theater. It was good that I was two hours away from home because my family did not really approve that, but they couldn't really do anything about it either, I guess. They didn't stop it. So, you know, (laughs) so I ended up becoming a theater major, which gave me, you know, definitely a lot of opportunities to uh, kind of continue to hone the craft that that I truly had started learning in high school. College kind of slipped more back into some of those tried and true traditional shows. You know, we had some really good opportunities with those shows. Um, I always wanted to gravitate towards either comedy roles or uh, like villain roles. So I you know, I was was heading towards character acting from the very start, I guess, of my career. I've, I've rarely ever played a lead uh, character in, in any of the plays that I've ever done. It's it's typically been character actors, which I think I kind of excel at. That very first show, the, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the way that we did it in between the acts, we had what were called oleos, I want to say. It's little vignettes, little songs, little performances in between the act while we moved the set pieces around um, in front of a like a gaslight curtain or whatever. Um, and one of the songs that we did for that was um, a rendition of What Do You Do With a Drunken Sailor, where I was the drunken sailor and um, another upperclassman was like, the taskmaster who was like doling out the punishments to me. If, if you're familiar with the song, it's, I don't know, kind of like a sea shanty or something. What do you do with a drunken sailor? What do you do with a drunken sailor? What do you do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? And then it's all kinds of terrible things that you apparently do to drunken sailors. It was tons of fun, but it was a, a, a 
brutal experience because neither myself, unfortunately, or the guy playing the uh, Cruel Taskmaster was particularly worried about practical stage combat and stage combat. We were just like, we're just going to do it. We'll just we'll just do the things. And so, you know, this guy was just kind of throwing me around the stage. At one point, he picks me up and throws me into a rowboat. All of these things, and and, and and we were really doing it. I mean, I guess maybe it was some padding around and stuff like that, but not really much. So I was just getting just getting the crap beat out of me in the show. But the audiences loved it, and I loved that they loved it. So it was kind of like a little jackass light, kind of. So that was a ton of fun. Um, I enjoyed, uh, we did Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore, which people who have heard me sing would say, why, what were you doing in a musical? But um, I was playing Dick Deadeye, the villain of the piece. And, you know, that's that's a great opportunity for a song that can be done without having to sing it so much as characters sing it. And, uh, you know, he was a malcontent pirate who was the complete opposite of the dashing hero um, of the story. So it didn't matter that I couldn't sing. All of these other people around me were doing all of this operatic singing, of course. Despite having had done, at that point, even probably 20 shows, I had never had any vocal training and uh, was was definitely not what anybody would consider a good singer. Still, in character voice, sang, sang my own solo song, which uh, had a lot of slapstick humor in it and uh, a lot of body jokes and things of that nature. So it went over well. We did do Shakespeare shows, uh, Romeo and Juliet, one year, and I had the opportunity in that show to play the furious Tybalt, who kind of gets the action started by killing Mercutio right off the bat. Um, and that was a dream role for me. The, the, the way that we staged it was crazy. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that it was crazy. We did it as uh, two rival military academies in the South at the brink of the Civil War. So we were all wearing these crazy cavalry Civil War era uniforms, blue and gray for the two different families. I don't think we did accents or anything like that. Nothing, nothing to tell you that it was in the American South. So it was a little confusing as to what was happening, I'm sure, to people. But if you were familiar with the play, it was the standard edition of that play that you were used to. Although, if I can tell a story about my youthful debauchery, it was also the 150th anniversary of the college. So it was supposed to be a big deal thing, and tons and tons of alumni came back for that show or for the, the for that run of shows. Um, and so we had all kinds of alumni coming back who wanted to party and have a good time. And prior to curtain opening for that show, several of uh, the cast members who were also in my fraternity with me, we decided to get kind of sloshed before the show, which I wouldn't recommend. We, uh, we were, I don't remember what we drank, but it was a lot. The show just started to veer out of control pretty quickly, as, as you might expect. The, uh, the thing I remember most was that the choreography that we'd spent so much time on in these sword fights, and we had these realistic little rapiers. I mean, they didn't have... Thankfully, they didn't have an edge to them or anything, but they were they were actual metal swords, and we were going just hog wild, attacking each other in the what should have been staged choreography. Um, people in in the audience for the show were also people who had been 
part of the pregame activities. And uh, one of the Fudge brothers from my class was in the audience and screamed out right in the middle of that fight that we were having on stage for me to cut his head off. And uh, it emboldened me to just completely drop the stage combat technique that we'd worked out and just attack him. He was basically fighting for his actual life as that fight went on. But, you know, everybody was fine afterwards. I don't think anybody was too offended by that. I mean, people in the audience were probably offended at Peanut Gallery for chiming in on the show. But uh, all of us who were involved with the show thought it was a great laugh after it was all over. And uh, we really enjoyed ourselves. So that was kind of my, my college career in a nutshell. So coming up on the end of college, thinking about uh, my future, um, it was interesting in college because this, I'm old enough that I was in college uh, right around the turn of the millennium. And what was happening at that time was people who were graduating right before me who were smart enough to get computer science degrees were going out and getting six-figure salaries for startup.com companies like you know pets.com and uh, a whole bunch of other dot-coms that don't exist today whatsoever. That was a very exciting prospect. Uh, the thought that you could just get out of college and go make a ton of money was amazing. But of course, um, as somebody who was getting a theater degree, I wasn't really swimming in that lane. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of optimism. I was really hopeful that um, I was going to be able to just, you know, go somewhere and, and make something happen. And of course, if you want to work in theater, the place to be is probably New York, I would say. I mean, Chicago's great, and there's there's a scene in numerous other cities across this country. But if you really want to work on the stage, you want to be in New York. So my plan was to go to New York, despite the fact that, again, I grew up poor, didn't have... Certainly wasn't going to go out there with, like, you know, a friendly loan for six months of living expenses or anything like that to get me started. I probably had couple hundred bucks in the bank tops and the looming threat of school loans that I had taken out uh, were, were going to start coming into the payment plan six months after I graduated. But my, my plan was to still do that, was to go to New York City. But then, unfortunately, in September of my senior year, there was a, a terrorist attack in New York City that I'm sure everybody is familiar with, 9-11. And when that happened, it had a chilling effect across New York City just in general and for the film and television and theater community you know in specific uh, a lot of those shows shut down for months and the city the, the the tone just changed in the city altogether the 90s had been probably a pretty exuberant pretty exciting time but uh it it felt like things had kind of gotten a little quieter a little little more nerve-wracking um, so people who I knew who had already kind of gone out that way were like, man, there's just nothing happening here. You can come out here and you can wait tables, but it's just, there aren't even shows. There's, there's no one to audition for. There's nowhere to go. And I don't know if that was true or not, but I took that advice and unfortunately declined to go to New York city. Like I perhaps should have. And decided to just stick it out in, back in Columbus, Ohio, where I'd grown up. There was a little bit of a theater scene there, and I did try to kind of work my way into it a bit, which gave me the opportunity to actually do a little directing for um, some community theaters in the area. 
which was great. I had directed a couple of shows in college as part of my course study. I had to take a directing class. My favorite show, I suppose, that I directed was uh, called Daddy's Dying, Who's Got the Will. I had a very talented cast. And there's a great little theater. And this was at this uh, playhouse in Columbus, Ohio. If you're ever in Columbus, Ohio, looking for some great community theater, there's a place called The Curtain Players. Wonderful place. And they've been they've been doing theater for 60 years continuously. They, they put on a season every year. And uh, so that's a great opportunity. It was a great opportunity for me to be able to come in and direct a show for them. I was, I was really gratified for the opportunity. And this was as a young, dumb kid of 22 or 23. But unfortunately, directing or acting in community theater isn't really a way to make a name for yourself or make a lot of money. So I needed to make a change. Um, and what I decided to do was to leave Columbus. Um, I thought that it was time to go see another city. The decision was sort of made for me. I, I had a good friend from college who had already moved to Savannah, Georgia. And I would talk to him and he was you know, telling me, hey, man, I live 30 minutes from the ocean got a spot here. It's really nice. You can drink publicly in the streets and you should come down. And he was right. I agreed with him. I thought that that was exactly where I needed to be. I was tired of winter in Ohio and uh, ready to see some new sites. So I moved to Savannah, Georgia in like 2004. Fresh out of college, Grant headed south, unaware that his stint in acting was far from over. When I moved to Georgia, I just basically completely got out of the business entirely. I, I didn't act. I didn't do anything for several years. My buddy and I tried to uh, write some screenplays because I thought that that was a good possibility that if we if we could write the things that we wanted to be in, we could just figure out a way to cheaply make them ourselves, you know, kind of go the indie route, which um, a lot of people were having success with at that time. It seemed like a good idea. We couldn't get our ideas to meet in the middle on things. We would both go and, and work on different things. But then when we would try and put them together, it just, we, we just couldn't, couldn't make it work. Plus we were just, you know, party boys. We were having a lot of fun and that was kind of hurting, hurting the uh, productivity probably. So I, I got out of the business for years, several years. And in that time, I had the fortune of meeting the girl who is my wife today. Her name's Whitney, and she is amazing. And I love her. She's a very supportive wife and partner and mother, and she's amazing. And I say that because she is what helped me eventually find my way back into performance um, years later. I had worked in sales. I had worked for one of the local television stations briefly. I got a job working for the public library system in Savannah, Georgia, and worked there for 10 years, just about, very close to 10 years. And um, while I was doing that, uh, some films started to come to town. You know, I'd considered film from like screenwriting perspective and, and things like that. But I, I, again, I guess I thought that there was just no way to make a film if you weren't in L.A. or New York. So I had never really considered 
acting for film and television. I, I hadn't really learned those skills in college. All of our training was very, very heavily focused on stage work. But in 2009, a movie came to town directed by Robert Redford. It was called The Conspirator, which was um, a very interesting story. Um, you know, if you're familiar with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, there were numerous people who were involved with it. John Wilkes Booth is the guy who actually pulled the trigger, um, but there were other people who were in his orbit. And so Robert Redford wanted to tell the story of a woman named Mary Surratt who had a lodging house where a lot of these conspirators were meeting to discuss their plans for this violent overthrow of the government. Whether or not she was actually um, one of the co-conspirators of that has been a mystery ever since it happened, but the federal government uh, convicted her in a quick little sham trial along with all of the other conspirators that they rounded up after the assassination. And she was the first woman to be executed by the federal government in our nation's history. They did an open casting call for that movie at the local mall in Savannah. And I decided to go to it. I mocked up some stupid little headshot for myself and listed my, my collegiate theater background and uh, took it up there and um, got a small part in the movie as one of the actors in the play that Abraham Lincoln is watching when he gets assassinated. So I played Lord Dundreary in Our American Cousin, which was what that show was called, the show that he was watching. And that was great. It was an amazing opportunity. It was uh, three days of work on it. Um, we actually rehearsed some of the scenes that were in that play. None of it ended up making the final cut. I, I'm in the in the movie, but I have no lines. I have no no dialogue, nothing like that. But um, it was uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful little movie. Didn't really catch fire. Didn't didn't make its money back, unfortunately. But uh, it was a, a great opportunity. I had to wear these crazy mutton chops that they glued onto my face and a wig and they caked all of this horrible makeup on my face which was you know the way that they did things back then but the the attention to detail in this period piece was top-notch and phenomenal and uh that was another one of those pivotal moments one of those eye-opening moments where i said to myself wow film and television is very very cool that is an exciting an exciting medium. I, I probably should consider doing more of that. And um, since then, I, I have. I don't know how many shows now. Probably twenty or thirty small parts. Always, always little background things, but uh, very enjoyable. I followed up um, Conspirator with X Men First Class, which filmed in the Brunswick area down on the coast. Brunswick stood in for. Uh, the beaches of Havana, where the plane crashes. So I had an opportunity to work on that, and that was great. Definitely, uh, definitely had some interesting, you know, interesting experiences. Um, you know, very, uh, very early on when I started working in film and television. And again, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think back on it now, and I'm just not sure if I was really that dumb or if I was just playing dumb. 
But um, they encouraged those of us who are doing background work, which is what, what a lot of what I have done is they encourage you to not talk to the actual stars, the actual talent, uh, to stay away from them. Um, unless they engage you, unless they want to have a conversation with you, then I guess feel free to, but um, but don't bother them. They're busy and you're nobody. That's fine. I get that. Um, but I do remember uh, they did a movie here in town in Savannah called Savannah. The lead in that movie is Jim Caviezel, who uh, most people probably remember from uh, The Passion of the Christ. And um, in between takes on a scene, they, they had let a few of us kind of get out of this tight, stuffy room. We were in this like little dining room area where he was being served a meal. And I was actually the waiter at their table. They yelled cut and it was in between scenes. And I went out and happened to see him standing off to the side smoking a cigarette. And I bummed a cigarette off of him, which is a completely stupid thing to do. Like you, They would definitely tell you not to not to bother guys and definitely not try and bum cigarettes off of them. But I did. I was like, hey, man, is there any chance I can get one of those? And he, gave, he graciously gave me one. Um, but then I started trying to like talk to him about, uh, you know, what it was like. Hey, what, what was it like to, to work on uh, the, the Mel Gibson film? What was it like to do The Passion of the Christ? Was that, How was that? Was that fun? And you got to remember that this was a movie that where, you know, obviously unspeakable horrors happened to Jesus and uh, Jim Caviezel got struck by lightning at one point during the production of that particular film. So here I am. Hey, how was that movie? Was that good? He was polite to me for just a moment. And then uh, suddenly he had other places to be, which which in retrospect makes complete sense. So I, I apologize to him. I'll never get to apologize to him in real life for bothering him. But <laughs> I'm sure that he was not happy to have that conversation. Even though I continued to work my day job at the library, I had built up some paid time off and uh, was able to use that uh, sparingly to, you know, dip into different shows and different films for a couple of days. That was going well for a couple of years. Then uh, I eventually left the library and started getting sort of more long-term assignments, I guess, on shows. There was another period piece that came to town, and, and period pieces are a big part of the work in Savannah, Georgia, for sure. It's a, a beautiful historic district downtown, just lends itself to period pieces, uh, dealing with historic events in American history and, and things like that. Because there is definitely a core of, of properties in Savannah that look untouched and look like the 1800s and, and just look amazing for this. So uh, another movie that came to town was called Emperor. It tells the story of a escaped slave named Shields Green, who was going north from from slavery after he escaped it. After he killed his master, he killed somebody on his plantation and was basically a fugitive slave running away and um, crossed paths with Frederick Douglass, who was a friend to some extent, of John Brown, who does the assault on Harper's Ferry. It's an amazing story based on a true story. It's, it's certainly not the true story, but it's uh, based on the true story. 
And I ended up being one of the men that were part of Brown's group, his militia group that moved into and took over the the fort, took over the armory. And um, while working on that movie, we spent two weeks at Fort Jackson, which is uh, was the stand-in for Harper's Ferry. Uh, it is a actual fort that is probably close to period, but never really saw any combat or action, even in the Civil War or anything after that. So it's a mostly untouched fortification that looked very, very good for the period. And uh, yeah, spent two weeks working on that as one of Brown's men uh, with a group of other people who, by and large, didn't have a, a deep, deep level of experience in acting. So we were all sort of fairly new to the film scene. I had probably done maybe four or five things prior to that, but, you know, never more than a day or two at a time. So this was my first opportunity to work for a couple of weeks and see the, the, the day in, day out everything that goes on sort of behind the scenes of the making of a film. And it's a very fascinating, interesting process to see all of the different crews, all of the different things that, that have to happen to make a movie happen. It's, it's a real joy to see that experience. So Emperor was, was great. Uh, gave me an opportunity to use firearms on a set, uh, which um, was a real pleasure uh, we had a fantastic armor and i can't remember his name but boy he he knew his stuff and he uh trained us in how to use these weapons it was a it was a it was a great opportunity a great experience to uh to be on for sure so i've worked in atlanta some not a lot um i did a thing for netflix up in atlanta called holiday you may have heard of that but uh, it was Emma Roberts and Luke Bracey, and it was just a, a rom-com thing. You do such weird things in film and television. What they were looking for was people to play costume characters in a uh, at a Halloween party, and um, they wanted people who had costumes that weren't, you know, you couldn't be Superman because that's a, a licensed franchise, and they don't need Superman at this party. They needed homemade costumes basically and uh, i had developed this character some years back named abner rockhard who is uh like a muscle man like a you know 19th century muscle man with big handlebar mustache but he's he's a guy who skips leg day every day to uh focus on his his chest and his arms so i've got this big like bodybuilder you know molded chest thing that i wear and then I throw like a striped tank top over it. And then because I'm kind of a slender guy, I wear these tiny little shorty shorts, these little booty shorts that leave nothing to the imagination with my terribly skinny legs. It's, it's a great look and uh, they were loving it. And I was uh, invited to dance with like, one of the actual characters on the show. Yeah, that was just a ton of fun. Like everybody was definitely gassed after fake dancing for 12 hours, which is what you do when you're at a party scene in a movie. They play like two seconds of music, then they cut it off, and then you keep doing the whole scene, pretending like that song's playing or that other music is going, and there's no music. It is super awkward to uh, try and fake dance when there's no music playing. 
that it was it was tons of fun to do to do that and um i actually got myself listed in the credits as abner rockhart which was like a dream come true for me because that's a character that i wish i could do something with i don't know what to ever do with him but there's some great footage on an editing room floor somewhere of of me really busting a move in this ridiculous costume that i love in the times of COVID, it was definitely difficult for a while to have anything happen. Uh, I, I don't think hardly anything was happening in the year 2020. But then things started to kind of percolate at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. Probably one of the very first major motion pictures to try and make it happen uh, during the pandemic was uh, a forthcoming movie that nobody's had a chance to see yet called Devotion, uh, which tells the story of the first African-American naval aviator. Tells the story of how he dealt with everything that that a, that a person in his position would have to deal with during the backdrop of the Korean War. And uh, I won't go into that movie too much. It hasn't come out yet, but um, that was another fantastic opportunity that probably is my longest stint on any project that I've ever worked on. That was January to April of 2021. Most days of that, I, I, I literally worked on that for months. I got to play one of the pilots in the squadron um, with the lead. His name's Jesse Brown. He's played by Jonathan Majors. And being in the, the squadron with him gave me an opportunity to rub elbows with Glenn Powell and Joe Jonas and, uh, and a number of other great actors. So that was a, a wonderful opportunity and uh, one that I, I really enjoyed. I can't wait to see when that movie comes out and see what it looks like. I hope that it looks as good on the big screen as it felt like it might be when we were making it. One of the perks of Grant's many acting gigs is the ability to work side-by-side side with someone very important to him. I've been blessed, been blessed with the opportunity to work with my daughter uh, a few times. I'm going to plug her right here because I think that's what you're supposed to do in Hollywood. Her name on IMDb, Emerson Henley. And uh, we've worked together on a few shows, probably the Best thing that you can see the two of us in is an episode of a show uh, that was on the Travel Channel, but uh, it's called Famously Afraid. And uh, the conceit of that show is that there are Hollywood celebrities who have seen ghosts or seen UFOs or it runs the gamut of seen things or been in weird situations and haunted houses and, and things like that. I played Howie Mandel in an episode dealing with Howie Mandel in the 80s um, when he was working on St. Elsewhere or whatever the, the medical show he was, the sort of the ER of the 80s. Um, so I played Howie and Emerson at that age, she was like four, I think, four or five. She played um, Howie's daughter, young daughter. And they supposedly had rented or bought this house in California while he was working. And um, there was this creepy man, this ghost who was in the house. And um, the the nanny 
for the kid, saw the ghost and quit the job and uh and howie and his wife didn't exactly believe it but like the the girl keeps waking up in the night and she keeps screaming things like the man the man that was fun getting to play opposite my daughter and actually like play you know father daughter with her we had to go to knoxville tennessee to do that because that's where they make those things if you're if you're in the knoxville tennessee area and you want to you want to work for oxygen or you want to work for true crime or some of those networks. That's where they do all of that at. That is a factory town of 30 minute television. And so we went up there and did an episode for that. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I enjoy the idea of my daughter working. She's gotten a little bit of work. She's done some commercials. She's done, you know, some, some background stuff. She's, uh, She's had some amazing auditions for very serious uh, parts on on shows that are in production right now, and but it is it is fraught with concern for a uh, for the parent who loves their children. <laughs> I guess I don't know. I guess there are stage moms out there who just like push their kids out and don't care what the opportunities are, don't care what the pitfalls are. But it's um it's a balancing act. It's tough to see your children working in the profession. If you yourself have worked in the profession, you know how the profession treats its employees, which isn't always great. Spoiler alert. Now, there are some some rules and some laws that would theoretically prevent kids from working too many hours a day on sets and uh, would would guarantee them, you know, a minimum level of comfort uh, while they're working. But uh it can be tough, you know, it, on that Famously Afraid set. I mean, we worked, it was almost 12 hours the day that we worked and we didn't even start till noon. So, I mean, she, you know, she she was up till almost midnight that night. But as a, a one day thing, I guess it's, it's not that big of a deal. But it, it makes me nervous about her if she were to get a real part about how we would have to uh, manage career to keep her from working too many hours and working unsafe conditions or anything like that um um oh the very first thing that she ever did was for a show and i got i guess i won't name this show because she was on set way too long that day again and the conditions were terrible they were keeping several children just in a pop-up tent at a closed down like an aquatic center, but not like a like a theme park, like a water park. There you go, water park. And it was October, so it was off season for this water park, but it was supposed to be, you know, summertime. It had been cold for several days in a row, so everybody who was pretending to be at this water park had been dealing with being in bathing suits and in freezing conditions, trying to look like they were having a good time. But uh, because we were filming this kind of, you know, in the fall. Some days in Savannah, it's cold. Some days, it's hot. The day that we were actually filming, the temperature had soared like 20, 30 degrees from one day to the next. And it was like in the mid 80s. And they were completely wrongly prepared for what people were going to need. I, I think they probably had coats and blankets and hand warmers and things like that. What they didn't have was really air conditioning or fans or anything like that. So then everybody was just sweltering and dying in the, this 80 degree weather trying to pretend like they were having a good time at this water park. And so they, they were doing what they could to 
accommodate the children and, and make it a good experience for them. But God love them. But the people who work in film and television uh, at the lower levels are usually like 20 year old kids who have never had children of their own and don't know how often children need to eat or how often they might need to go to the bathroom. So it can get dicey trying to navigate how you can keep your children feeling comfortable when working on a set. But uh, having that experience myself, I mean, you know, I, I definitely had no problem lobbying some of the crew people and saying, hey, can we get something for this kid to eat? Let's let's take care of her so that she doesn't have a meltdown or anything when you turn the camera on her. Little things like that, I guess, that kind of help get them by. But she had a great experience with that. And she does. She enjoys the work. Luckily, I guess she hasn't really been <laughs> she certainly hasn't been exploited because uh, between me and if her mother was on set with her, she would shut that down in a, in a New York minute. That would be no problem to. I, I hope that my daughter continues with it if she wants to. I don't put any pressure on her to do auditions. She has turned some down. She's turned down a couple of auditions for shows that other people would have been tearing their hair out to uh, audition for. But, you know, if, if she isn't feeling it in a particular day, we don't press the issue. If she wants to do it, I, I want to be there for her and support her and hopefully help her. I, I feel like uh, she's got a unique opportunity, I guess, having a parent who knows about the business and, and how to act and things like that, that she can, you know, hopefully learn from me and learn from my mistakes and from my successes and um, can hopefully use that to her benefit and, and avoid some pitfalls and, and really make a name for herself if she chooses. She's lucky. She's doing better than I am. She's got an agent. I, I had an agent. I, I'm currently in between agents. It's a real issue about trying to get representation here in Savannah. There have been probably a, a small handful of agents who have you know hung a shingle in the area. Um, I was with one of them in 2019. But then that agency basically folded up in 2020 when everything, you know, everything went on pause. That loss of revenue for that agency crippled it. And that was the end of that agency, so far as I know. And it is tough, you know, that they, they do open casting calls occasionally for movies or they used to. I don't I don't even think they really do that much anymore. But then, yeah, it's it's crazy because they want to pull the actors from Atlanta to come to Savannah to work or, you know, New York or LA or wherever, of course. Okay. So go get an agent in Atlanta. But then if you say that you live in Savannah, they say, well, you're not really local to Atlanta at that point. That's, that's a long way to go for things. Are you sure? It's like, well, how about I work on the stuff that comes to Savannah? Okay. Well, you know, if we can't get you in front of those casting directors, it's really, it's, it's kind of a crap shoot. It's hard to say. So it, it, it's a weird issue to run into, but it's a, a definite problem. And I think a problem for a lot of folks, there's there may be one or two sort of agencies in the nearby area, but I, I don't know. I don't know what, what level of work they get. I don't I don't know of any real success stories coming from those agencies. Uh, my daughter, for instance, now she's actually represented out of Atlanta, but I think it's maybe it's maybe easier for kids. I think that everything on the business side of it is sort of easier for kids than for adults. 
I feel like maybe there's a little bit less competition, even though there's obviously, you know, thousands and thousands of beautiful children across this country. Ones who, you know, if you're, if you're talking about a four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven, whatever, you know, young, very young children, you know, how many of them can read? How many of them can speak without a lisp as they're losing their teeth and gaining them? How many of them have the level of attention or attention to detail that they can understand what's going on? You know, so that starts to knock a lot of people out of contention. But on the adult side, there's thousands and thousands of hopefuls out there. And there's hundreds of probably hopefuls, you know, here locally. There's, I'm sure, I'm sure I can think of 20, 30 people in this town who could deserve a shot and, and would really do well to have an agent and have representation, but it's, it's challenging to uh, figure out how to, how to do that. I, I wish a serious agency would open up in the Savannah market. Grant has always gravitated toward unconventional jobs, yet he considers himself at a crossroads and is presently unsure which path he will take. I, I'm not unwilling to have a day job, and I've, I've done different things, you know, short term, and I, I, I'm thinking I might go back to getting a real job in the beginning of 2022. But, you know, I, I worked in sales for like five years and I hated it. I hated every minute of it. You know, I, I had that library job. It was a career path. I, I could have just kept doing it. I could have stayed with the library system and I could still be working there today, I'm sure. Doing the same thing every day, the tedious grind. And I I know for everybody out there who does that and does that because there is no alternative, they say, you know, suck it up, buttercup. But there are a lot of people out there who don't have to do that. They can have some variety in their life. So yeah, I've I've definitely I've done some weird, weird jobs to try and afford myself some flexibility so that I can work when I want to. When I left the library, <laughs> the the job that I transitioned to after that is about as far away from a library job as, as a person can probably have almost. I took over the day-to-day operations of a pedal bike company here in Savannah. And um, if you are unfamiliar with what a pedal bike is, in a lot of cities, they have these long vehicles that have a bunch of people sitting on them pedaling bicycle style. And uh, the work of, you know, six, eight, 12 people can push these big motorized bikes around a town while somebody else drives it. Perfect thing to do for like bachelor party, bachelorette party, bachelorette parties especially, um, to have these crazy two-hour parties where you just go from bar to bar and get drunk and listen to loud music and party and have a good time. Now, that's on brand for me as a person but it was not something that I had ever done vocationally before. With I had never been a bartender. I'd never. I certainly was never going to be a bouncer. I'm not really built for that. I'm a lover, not a fighter. So it was great to have that opportunity, and I was able to work some while while holding down that job. It's, that was tough work. I did that off and on for two years, and uh, I, w- I would not go back to that particular profession if if the opportunity arose. I worked for. The U.S. Census uh, for the 2020 Census, which was 
a real blessing in disguise. I started working for it in 2019 and was, you know, literally out in the field, walking around neighborhoods, trying to make sure that addresses that we had on file were places where there were still buildings and homes. And uh, But apparently I did well enough with that work that they promoted me to being a field supervisor who had a team of 20 people underneath me who were the ones who were actually, you know, out there knocking on the doors and trying to get people to complete their their questionnaires. We were just in the process of doing the training for those folks again in March of 2020 when the the, the caseload started to get high in places and people and so they shut all of that down for months but kept uh, the supervisors at least on the payroll um, and kept paying us to keep tabs on the, the people in our teams and make sure that they were healthy and that they were hanging in there and that they, you know, were still living in the area and would, would still do their assigned duties once we ever got the all clear to go back to work. So that was a right place at the right time kind of situation where I was getting a paycheck for not no work. I, I was definitely on conference calls and definitely doing, doing work and, you know, paperwork, lots and lots of paperwork. Um, but yeah, I do. I like having unconventional jobs. It's, it's a funny thing about the, the film and ent- entertainment industry, especially for crew, for the people who you know work behind the scenes. It's very hard for a bank to understand what it is that you do for a living. They want you to have a regular employer. They don't want you to be jumping from job to job to job every three weeks, every six weeks, every two months. So um, I actually did have to dip out of doing film and television work for a period of some months uh, while we were trying to, you know, negotiate leaving the the house that we had to moving into the house that we're currently in. So I bit the bullet and went and took a job at a distribution center, just loading and unloading trucks and, uh, you know, working a conveyor belt that was processing pillowcases and shower curtains and all sorts of other things coming in off of a boat and going to a target and a Walmart near you, I'm sure. Which is, it's, it's good. It's good to be able to have those kinds of experiences and to just work regular jobs because it's good to still be a regular person. I mean, not, not that I have any illusions of that. I'm any kind of celebrity or nobody, nobody ever recognizes me on the street for the work that I've done. So it's, it's certainly not like that, but I suppose if you get into a position where you are a working actor and you spend your days with nothing but catered food and a trailer and hotel rooms that you can stay in or, you know, whatever, I think it's probably real easy for a person to lose sight of what the everyday experience is for the vast multitude of people. Um, so it's been nice to kind of ping pong back and forth between doing some standard human work. So it's uh, it's an unconventional life. And again, I have to give my my wife so much credit for uh, having the, the big girl job now, uh, wearing the pants in the family for a while while I'm trying to figure out what it is that I want to be when I grow up. She's encouraged me throughout this process and, uh, and along the way. Um, you know, we recognize the economics of it sometimes and, and I, and I'm completely willing to say, yeah, maybe, maybe I need to get a paycheck every week and, uh, go and do that. 
when needed. And then when things are good and where we want them to be, I can kind of let my foot off the accelerator and and then dip into these sort of these creative endeavors. And I hope to continue to do that. But yeah, I'm definitely I'm at a point where I'm not sure what the future holds, whether um, I'm considering maybe looking at doing crew work um, more full time. I've, I've got some friends locally in the IATSE. I'm considering that as a possibility or maybe going and getting a real job, maybe sticking with this. Although, you know, I definitely, I feel like I need to get an agent um, who understands the local environment and, uh, and can, you know, can, can still get people in front of the eyes of the actual movers and shakers, the casting directors in Atlanta and LA and wherever, even for these local movies. I really enjoy working in the Southeast. All the work that I've done has been Florida, Georgia, Carolinas, Tennessee. That's, I mean, not that I wouldn't want to travel and see the world if if a great opportunity came up and, and if one did, I would take it. But, you know, for just doing commercials and little one day things and one week here and there and whatever it's it's nice to be closer to home and be able to come home when i can i I like the fact that most nights of most weeks i can either take my daughter to school or if i have to be in before she goes to school hopefully i'm home by the time she is home for the night and have dinner with my family and so that would be something that would be tough if the stars did align and something came up there would be that period of of some time i'm sure where i would be on the road a lot and i wouldn't be home and i wouldn't be with my family or i don't know my family would have to drop everything and come with me which i wouldn't really want for them to do i wouldn't want to pull my daughter to school for you know no reason no no good reason i guess just to be available to hang out with me when i'm not working or something so it is. It's a it's a constant struggle of trying to decide what tomorrow is going to bring. For a guy who flies by the seat of their pants, that's that's the life. And that's, uh, you know, I, I'm comfortable with it in a way that I'm sure that a lot of people wouldn't be. I'm sure a lot of people do not want to walk on the tightrope without a safety net. Um, but for me, it's sort of working. For young people, my advice would be watch a bunch of movies like if you if you want to do film and television watch a bunch of movies and and older movies don't just watch things that are coming out right now because I, the the movie industry is kind of dreadful right now i mean there's there's fantastic stuff out there honestly television has a lot of great stuff i feel like movies are in a in a tough spot right now there's just you know there's the superhero movies and the big franchises and the you know the big intellectual properties like that but then there's just so many other kinds of movies that can be made and they are being made on shoestring budgets all over the place but it's so hard to figure out how to find them and how to connect with them or connect them to an audience um but if you're you know if you're 20 years old and you have never seen a black and white movie in your life you you should find some you should pick a few of them out and you should watch them just so that you can get an understanding of the totality of the craft of 
filmmaking? I would say start when you're young. <laughs> start when you're, you know, if, if you're already old, it's too late for that advice. But, uh, you know, it's, I think it probably gets harder for most people to try and figure out how to make it happen the years go by when you're not tied down by the demands of, you know, family and things of that nature. It's a lot easier to sleep in your car or do do whatever crazy things are asked of you uh, to, to help you kind of build character um, and to build a reputation for yourself. You know, people treat each other wonderfully and terribly at the same time on, on film and television sets. So you have to have a bit of a thick skin. And I think that for a lot of people, as they get older, it would be hard to be accepting of getting yelled at in front of 30 other people because you're maybe doing something wrong and you've been doing it wrong for a while. If, if that's something that would be hard for a person to put up with, film and television is probably not a great vocation. Definitely you know, for, for people I see who do crew work and, you know, are working sometimes and not working sometimes, uh, budget that money, make that money last. Don't, don't spend it all while you're in the good times. If there's a break between shows, you might get hungry or you might get tempted to, you know, go take that day job somewhere. And I think it can get real easy for people who take those day jobs to get comfortable with them and stay at them and not come back, which is fine. But um, if you want to try and have a career, you probably have to have one burner of the stove of your life constantly on and focused on it even if you have other things going on. And it's a juggling act. You have to figure out how to juggle all of those things. If you turn that burner off, it may not turn back on. So you have to be careful to think about if you're willing to walk away from it, will it be there if you decide to come back? And the answer may be yes and maybe no. Thanks for listening to Creators by Moonlight. Email the show at creatorsbymoonlight at gmail.com and follow the show on social at Creators by Moonlight. <laughs>